The uh, text for the message today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And I'm going to invite you right now, if you're able, to stand for the public reading of God's Word. Let's stand together and give our attention, reading Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 15 through 17. Let's hear the Word of God. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. Verse 15, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mashan, Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Christ. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. <laughs> well, now that Thanksgiving is over, we begin to prepare, of course, for Christmas. And as we do, there's a word that we're going to hear many, many times over the course of the next few weeks. In fact, we've heard it a lot already with reference to Black Friday sales. It's the word gifts, as we're all trying to find the right gift for the right person at the right price. Well, it may come as something of a surprise to you that God has some gifts that he wants to give to you during this Christmas season. You're not gonna find his gifts wrapped up under a tree. It's not the sort of thing you can secure from online shopping. But best of all, God's gifts to us never fade, they never wear out, they never need uh, replacement batteries. And the first of these gifts that we're gonna focus on this morning is wrapped up inside this genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I've actually heard of two individuals who became Christ followers as a result of reading all of these 17 verses found here in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, the first, maybe today, you know, there'll be a third person. Wouldn't that be wonderful if somebody here this morning or watching the service online were to come to Saving Faith? The first of these individuals was a man from a Hindu background he read all of these 17 verses and became convinced that Christianity is rooted in history, unlike the mythology of Hinduism, that the people named here actually lived, space-time individuals, many of them kings, of course, coming down to the person of Christ, who also existed. There's even evidence outside the Bible from secular Roman historians concerning the existence of Jesus Christ. So that's the first person who came to faith. The second was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. He read this narrative of scripture and became convinced that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of all of the promises and prophecies throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament. We find that virtually every single name here draws our attention to God's incredible grace. And that really is the gift that God wants to extend to us this Christmas. Grace to morally broken people like me and like you. So what is grace? Grace is a term that really belongs in the same ballpark of words like love and mercy. So love, mercy, grace, they're all part of kind of the same grouping. If love is defined as compassion in action, we can define mercy perhaps as compassion in action to people in a state of need. So the big thing with regard to mercy is, is, the, is the need of the individual. Compassion in action to people in need. So what's grace? Grace would be compassion in action to people in need who deserve the very opposite treatment. What they deserve is justice. What they deserve is punishment. What do they get? Forgiveness acceptance, a right relationship with God, and the hope of heaven. So that's what grace is all about. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say that these verses are among the most exciting in all the Bible. No, I mean, obviously they're not. It's a sort of section of Scripture, I think. If you have a regular Bible reading plan, maybe you're reading, working your way through now the New Testament, and you were to come to Matthew chapter 1, these verses, it's a sort of section you would just want to skip over and get on with maybe verse 18 of this first chapter and some of the narrative that's there. But if you and I will take the time to kind of slow down a little bit here and examine what's here, I think we're going to find that God has revealed his grace in every single generation to prepare the world for the coming of the Christ. Now, to Jewish readers back in the world of the first century, and Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, this would be the most interesting, most exciting, most necessary way to begin the story of somebody's life. To them, it would probably be more exciting than perhaps even playing computer games. Now, let me tell you why I, I would say that by drawing your attention to three introductory comments about the genealogy. To begin with, genealogies were important to the Jews for a number of reasons. As an example, they were very important to determine a family's place of residence. Nation of Israel was made up of tribal people and depended on, depending on what tribe you belong to would determine where that tribe was supposed to be located. So it was crucial for that reason. Secondly, genealogies were also important to prove priestly descent. One of the tribes within the nation of Israel was the tribe of Levi. And if you could prove from your genealogy that you were of that tribe and you were male, you would automatically become a priest. So it was important for that reason as well. But there's another reason, a major reason, for the importance of this particular genealogy. And it has to do with the fact, and this brings us to Matthew chapter 1 then, that it was essential to prove kingly descent from the line of David. Now let me explain what I mean by that, by drawing your attention to two verses in the Old Testament 
that are frequently quoted in connection with the birth of Jesus. They go back some 700 years before Jesus was even born. Words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. This is what Isaiah writes. For a child, in fact, we sang these words in two of the three songs we've already sung today. I wonder if you've noticed that. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, speaking of Jesus, and notice, the government will rest on his shoulders. So he's going to be a ruler, and these will be his royal or his kingly titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His ever-expanding peaceful government will never end. He will rule forever with fairness and justice. Now notice this phrase, from the throne of his ancestor, David. So if Jesus is this king, if he's the Christ, the Messiah, if he's this wonderful counselor, mighty God, and so on, it's got to be shown that he descends from the line of David. And that's exactly what Matthew wants to show us in this text of Scripture. Now, I think it's important to point out that since the destruction of the Jewish temple uh, by the Romans in A.D. 70, no genealogy exists today that can trace the ancestry of any Jew living currently back to his or her tribe of origin. All of the records have vanished. And I point that out to you because some Orthodox Jews are still looking for the Messiah. They don't think Jesus is the Messiah. They're still looking for the Messiah. But you see, they have a problem. Should somebody come along to say, I, I'm, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king? That person, of course, will never be able to prove it. So if Jesus is not this king, no one else will ever be able to make a verifiable, believable claim to the title, since all of the records have vanished. So we see the importance of genealogies. In addition, though, to pointing out something of their importance, I want to draw your attention to three implications of this particular genealogy. And to begin with, it differs from the genealogy of Jesus found in Luke chapter 3. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, I need to know this. Why? Well, you need to know it for this reason. Skeptics love to point it out. So you have a genealogy of Jesus here, Matthew 1. You also have another one in Luke chapter 3. And the critics love to point out they don't reconcile to one another. There are significant differences in the names that are found in the genealogies. And so they conclude from all of that, see, you can't trust the Bible. And if you can't trust it with respect to historical data like this genealogy, Jesus' family tree, why in the world should you accept it with regard to anything else it might say? So, are there differences in the two genealogies? Answer, yes. But I think the answer is rather simple, and it's this, that Matthew's genealogy traces the family line of Jesus back through Joseph. Luke's genealogy traces the family tree of Jesus back through Mary. Now, Mary, so they're going to be different names, right? Because of the differences, one from Joseph, the other through Mary. But Joseph and Mary were both descendants of David. However, descendants were different sons of David. 
Joseph is a descendant of David through David's son Solomon. Mary is a descendant of David through David's son Nathan. But it's as if the scripture is saying, you know what, folks, it really doesn't matter how you look at this. This is the one who should be the king. So that's the first implication. Here's the second. This genealogy stresses the fact that Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, not his biological father. So here you are reading through this list of names, you know, snoring your way through the list, and you come to verse 15, and I want you to notice the pattern here, not so much the names, but the pattern. Eliah, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph. So when we come to verse 16, we would expect it to say, and Joseph, the father of Jesus, right? Is that what it says? Well, look at verse 16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, isn't that amazing? I mean, why doesn't it say Joseph, the father of Jesus? Well, because Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Jesus didn't have a human father. He was not conceived by human, by male sperm, okay? Joseph adopted Jesus. So if you've been adopted, you're in great company, right? You're in the company of Jesus. He was also adopted. And because Jesus was Joseph's child legally by adoption, that means that Jesus had all the rights and prerogatives of a natural born son. And so in every way possible, Jesus Christ has the right to rule. His father by adoption, Joseph, gives him grants to him the royal line, and his mother by birth, Mary, gives to him the royal blood. All right, there's a third implication. This genealogy points out the fulfillment of, I think, a very interesting prophecy. I want you to notice verse 11. It says this, Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon, after the exile to Babylon, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Now you notice this underlined name here, Jehoiachin. He ruled back in 597 BC. He was such a wicked ruler, he only reigned for three months, that God took his office away from him and not only that, put a curse on his offspring. We read about that in Jeremiah 22. This is what the Old Testament says, Jeremiah 22. This is what the Lord says. Let the record show that this man Jehoiachin was childless. Now stop there for a second. Was he childless? No. We just read in Matthew's gospel that he was the father of a guy named Shaltiel. Okay, he had kids, but let the record show that he's childless. Why? Well, because of this curse. For none of his children will ever sit on the throne of David to rule in Judah. None of them, none of them. His life will amount to nothing. So Jehoiachin was the last king to reign in the line of David. He was succeeded not by his son because of this curse. He was succeeded instead by his uncle. But you see, now we have a problem. Here it is. The problem is that the Messiah has to come through the line of David and Jehoiachin to have the right to rule. But if he comes from the line of David and Jehoiachin, he can't rule because of this curse. 
So he's got to come through Jehoiachin to have the right to rule, but if he has the right to rule through Jehoiachin, he can't rule because of this curse. So how in the world is God going to solve this problem? Well, he does it by means of the virgin birth. That's how he does it, bypassing the bloodline of Jehoiachin and yet maintaining Jesus' royal right to reign. I mean, it's just a fabulous thing that God has done. All of these details worked out by means of the virgin conception of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there you have the importance of genealogies and implications of this one. But I want you to notice also here the title of this particular genealogy. It's given to us in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So this is the record of how Jesus came to be. Okay? This is the story of his life, his ancestry. Why is this important? Well, because in the world of the first century, there was a great deal of confusion and misunderstanding regarding the identity of Jesus and how he came into existence. I mean, all kinds of weird ideas of cohabitation with snakes and gods and all kinds of weird things. So it's as if Matthew was cutting through all of that misunderstanding. And he's saying, I want to set the record straight. This is how Jesus came to be this historical person, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So in other words, Jesus is not some self-appointed Messiah who kind of shows up, comes out of the woodwork, as it were, and declares, hey, folks, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king. Like a lot of cult leaders do today, you know, they sort of self-appoint. And Jesus, no, he's not like that at all. This genealogy proves he is the king. But now, in particular, I want to draw your attention to this incredible theme of grace as it's woven all through this entire genealogy. And I want to do that by drawing your attention to four main ways that reveal the theme of grace. So first of all, we see the theme of grace in the choice of one woman. Look at verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. Just think about the grace that God extended to this woman, Mary, who becomes the mother of the Messiah. When Mary finds out that she's pregnant, knowing she hasn't had sex with any guy, I mean, how in the world can that be? Well, she's visited by an angel who tells her that this conception is out of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is how she responds to the message of the angel. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Oh, how I praise the Lord, how I rejoice in God, my Savior. So Mary understands she needs a Savior from her sin. You see, throughout the history of Christianity, some have elevated Mary to a place of incredible prominence. Some have attempted to argue that she was born without sin to her parents. It's called the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Now, maybe you've heard doctrine. Oh, yeah, that kind of takes me back to some religious training I got somewhere along the line. Okay, maybe you thought Immaculate Conception. It's probably talking about the birth of Jesus. No, the doctrine is that this has reference to Mary that Mary was conceived without sin by her parents. It's also stressed that she remained throughout her life a virgin. 
Even though if you look ahead to Matthew 1, verse 25, it says that Joseph didn't have a relationship sexually with Mary until, it says, until after the birth of Jesus. And other passages of scripture throughout the gospels tell us that Joseph and Mary had natural born children uh, as a result of their ongoing relationship. But then it's also stressed that she never died, that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven in a sinless state. Now Mary is an amazing woman. She certainly is worthy of our utmost respect, but she still needed a savior. Now more than likely, when she gave birth to Jesus, she was probably like 13 or 14 years of age. I mean, it was very natural for a young woman of that age to be married and then to start having children. So we assume, scholars do, that she was probably 13, 14 years of age. And she's a virgin. Now maybe as a young person here today, male or female, you're a virgin and you're saving yourself for marriage. If so, I want to commend you, but you know what? Just like Mary, you still need a savior from the self-centeredness and the pride that impact virtually every one of us, and God graciously has provided a savior for you as he did for Mary in the person of Jesus Christ. So that reveals grace. What's grace? Compassion and action given to people in a state of need who deserve the very opposite treatment. So we see that here. Next, we see grace extended to two men, David and Abraham. Verse 1, record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what were these guys like? How did they end up in the ancestry of the Messiah? Well, the answer again reveals grace. David, of course, was the king who committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And when the king finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, he has her husband murdered. So he cheats on his wife. I mean, there are a lot of men and women today who cheat on their spouses, and maybe that's part of your story. So he's, he cheats on his wife, he's an adulterer, he's a murderer, and in addition to all of that, he's a terrible dad. And maybe at times you feel like something of a failure as a parent. Well, it was through David, in spite of these things, that he becomes part of the kingly line. I mean, I hope that reveals to you this amazing theme of God's incredible grace. So how about this other guy, Abraham? Well, on two separate occasions, he lies to two different Egyptian rulers concerning the identity of his wife, Sarah. He's thinking to myself, wow, I mean, she's attractive, probably want to have sex with my wife. If they find out I'm the husband, they're going to do me in. So I'll just lie. I'll just say that she's my sister, as if to say, you know, if you want to have sex with my sister, go ahead. So that's Abraham. I mean, can you imagine? But you see, here's the point. Even the best in this ancestry Abraham, who is regarded as the father of the entire Jewish nation, the first one to call an Eber, that is a Hebrew, and David, the father of the kingly line, even the best stand in need of forgiveness by the coming of this promised Savior. And so if you see yourself today as something of a moral fail failure, you're in very good company. God extends his grace to people like me and just like you. 
Okay, let's go further. We see the theme of grace in the choice of one woman and in two men. Thirdly, we see it with respect to three periods of history. Notice verse 17. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to King David, 14 from David's time to the Babylonian exile, 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. So you have three periods of 14 names each. By the way, a number of names are intentionally omitted from this genealogy. Now don't be shocked with that. That was common. And in this case, probably done by Matthew, having 14 names limited to 14 names in each of these three periods. So it would, it would become a lot easier for Christians, early first century Jewish Christians, to memorize this list of names, which of course they would have been excited to do. But let's think about these three periods of history. The first period we're told goes from Abraham to David. What was that period like? Well, it was a period of great beginnings. I mean, you've got superstar patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You've got amazing judges like Deborah and, and Gideon and, and Samson. So these were the glory days of the nation of Israel as it comes into its very existence. All right, you come to the second period, which goes from David's time to the exile in Babylon. What's that period like? Oh boy. Tragedy. I mean, every once in a while you come across the name of a godly ruler like Jehoshaphat is referred to, Hezekiah, Josiah, verse 10. But that which dominates the landscape here are wicked, corrupt rulers. Guys with names like Rehoboam and Ahaz, Manasseh, verse 10. So it's a period of moral rebellion that ultimately led to the complete destruction of Israel as they go into Babylonian captivity, okay? So, you have great beginnings followed by rebellion. The third period goes from the Babylonian exile to the Christ. What's significant about that period? Nothing. You've got 600 years of names we don't even know. I mean, you've never heard of guys like Abayud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, and these others? I know you haven't. How do I know that? They're never found anywhere else in the Bible, just here, okay? So you have three periods. Greatness, followed by rebellion, followed by obscurity. Maybe those three words describe something of your spiritual journey. And you had great beginnings, raised in the Christian family, you know, come to a church, maybe even a Christian school attendance, but then you hit adolescence, then you hit teen years or in your early 20s, you go away to university somewhere and it's a time for you of rebellion. And here you sit in this place this morning still kind of feeling spiritually lost. Well then you need to know all along through all of these different periods of history, God is preparing the world for the coming of the Christ. Yeah. So here we see throughout all of this, the theme of God's amazing grace. One woman, Mary, two men, Abraham, David, three periods of history. Finally, we see God's grace in the inclusion of four women who were outcasts. 
Now, it was highly unusual for the name of a woman to appear in a Jewish genealogy. I mean, women back in the world of the first century were nobodies. Every day, a Jewish man would begin with a prayer. God, I thank you, I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So women were, you know, right there with Gentile dogs and slaves. They didn't have any rights whatsoever. A man could divorce his wife for all kinds of frivolous reasons, but a woman could be abused in all kinds of ways. She had no right to get a divorce. So it was a terrible time for women. So the fact that we have women, four of them, mentioned in Jesus' family tree is absolutely amazing. But then when we go to examine what these women were like, I mean, it's really incredible because it draws our attention to this theme of God's great grace. So let's meet them, shall we? The first is introduced to us in verse 3. Her name is Tamar. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now let's take a look at that verse for a moment. So here you have a dad named Judah. Two sons are named here. They actually were um, twins, Perez and Zerah. And we're told that the mother is who? Tamar, right? So if Judah is the father and Tamar is the mother, were they husband and wife? No, they were not. So you say, oh, there's some hanky-panky going on here. Exactly. Let me tell you something of the story. Judah selects Tamar to be the wife of his oldest son. So they get married. He's such a wicked guy that God takes his life. So now Tamar is single, no kids. And in the ancient world, to, have, to be childless was, for a woman was just like a curse. Terrible thing. So here was the law. The law said if the second son in the family is single, he's obligated to marry his deceased brother's wife. So the second son marries uh, Tamar, and it's deja vu all over again. God takes his life. So now she's been married to the two sons of this man, Judah, no kids. So what does she do? Well, she takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up like a, a prostitute, including covering her face, goes into town, waits for her father-in-law, Judah, to show up, propositions him. They have a physical relationship together. She becomes pregnant and gives birth to the twins who are mentioned here. Say, oh my word. I mean, a woman like that in the messianic line? Exactly. And from that incestuous relationship, these twins are born. Well, you see, if God would have a woman like that in the messianic line, doesn't that speak to you of his amazing grace? That's the kind of God we worship today. Now, the second woman mentioned here in verse 5 is Rahab. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. What was Rahab like? Oh, boy. It's not getting any better, okay? When we get to Rahab and introduce uh, her story, as it's described in the, the book of Joshua, the Old Testament, chapter 2, we meet her. She's a Gentile prostitute. So General Joshua decides it's time under God's direction to invade the promised land, a dire nation. But he sends spies into the city of Jericho to check it out militarily. Word gets out, there are these spies in our city. 
So they, hide, they meet this prostitute Rahab, she hides them, deceives the rulers of the city concerning the fact that she doesn't know anything about that, where they are. And um, later we find out from Hebrews chapter 11 that she becomes an amazing woman of faith. But for starters here, she's a Gentile prostitute, okay? And here she's included in the Messianic line as the mother of Boaz, we're told. And that would make Rahab the great-great-grandmother of King David. So that's the, um, the second woman. The third woman, verse 5, is Ruth. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, is Ruth a prostitute? No. You go, finally. But... She was a Gentile, and she came from a Gentile tribe that lived on the other side of the Jordan River, known as the Moabites, who themselves were the product of incest. So this third woman is a Gentile, part of a tribe that came into existence through an incestuous relationship. And the Jews hated the Moabites. So God puts a curse on them, and we read about that in Deuteronomy 23, no Moabites or any of their descendants for 10 generations may be included in the assembly of the Lord. And yet in spite of all of this, God chooses this woman born to, into a tribe, cursed all of this, and she finds grace in the eyes of God and becomes the great grandmother of King David. So Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, one more woman. She's not named, but it's obvious who it's referring to. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, who's the wife of Uriah? Well, Bathsheba. So here's the woman with whom David had an adulterous relationship. The child born of that union dies in infancy. And again, he has the husband murdered. So all of this is going on, but eventually... Uh, David and Bathsheba get married, and she has a son named Solomon, who's referred to here. So by God's grace, Bathsheba becomes part of this, the ancestry of the Christ. So let me summarize all of this for you. Four women are mentioned in Jesus' family tree. Two are Gentiles, two are prostitutes, one is born of incest, and the other is an adulteress. And those are the only women included in Jesus' family tree. I mean, what a genealogy, right? But then you add in the names of all of these other characters that are mentioned throughout this section of Scripture, and we come to this conclusion about all of these moral failures. Here it is. The people in the Messianic line are not those on display. You know who's really on display here in, in Matthew chapter 1? God is. God is on display. His grace is on display. One wo woman, two men, three periods, four women outcasts. What's the message? God is a God of incredible grace. And I hope you're glad about that because I know I sure am. But let me, in closing of the teaching, draw your attention to a couple of questions I want you to do some thinking about. Here's the first. Have you become desensitized to God's grace? Have you? Now, you may recall the very people that ended up rejecting Jesus were very religious. They were called Pharisees. They were Orthodox. They came to services. 
They gave a lot of money to support God's causes. I mean, they were very pious, right? But they were so impressed with their devotion to God that they ended up rejecting the very Savior who came on their behalf. And I'm just wondering this morning if that's you. I mean, maybe you were raised in a Christian family, come to a Christian church, went on to a Christian school somewhere along the line, but have you really come to a heart appreciation of God's grace for you? Ever a time in which you said, Lord Jesus, I'm just broken. I'm lost without you. I need a savior. Or has your response to all of this background of yours left you insensitive and indifferent to grace? Let's allow God to break through any lack of appreciation today to show us it takes the same grace of God to save the most respectable person in the world as it does to save the most lawless. Nothing but the grace of God can save anybody. So, have you become desensitized to grace? Second question. Are you willing today to let God love you? Now, as you think about that, <clears throat> I want you to do a couple of things. First of all, think back over some of these names we've talked about this morning and ask yourself, with whom do I identify the most? Hmm. Maybe some of you would say, I probably kind of most identify with Mary. I mean, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I need a savior. Or maybe you would most identify with these two men, Abraham and David, who really messed up big time. Deceitful, unfaithful, maybe that's your story. Or maybe your life has gone you know, down the tubes morally like some of these kings. Great beginnings, followed by rebellion. And now you're feeling kind of out of it, kind of lost. Or maybe you can identify with these women. You feel like an outcast. May God show you today the power of his grace and forgiveness and acceptance of morally broken, messed up rejects like me and like you, okay? Because that's the kind of God we, we worship. So what do we have to do? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 5, I have come to call sinners to turn from their sins, not to spend my time with those who think that they're already good enough. You need to turn from your sin. You need to receive Christ into your life as your Savior and as your King. Let God love you. And if that's your story, and you've committed your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to find some way during this Christmas season to celebrate it. Now, maybe for you, it's helping out your next-door neighbor in terms of, of getting out your snowblower and cleaning off his driveway. Maybe for you, it's the woman next door who's kind of, it's difficult for her to get her mail each day, and you're going to help out in that capacity. Maybe it's inviting somebody to this Christmas festival on December the 11th, 10 o'clock, hot chocolate petting zoo, all kinds of amazing things. Maybe it's inviting somebody to worship here at City Church Online or coming to a Christmas Eve service. Maybe it's participating in a special giving project like Jonathan House Project or something else that you feel prompted toward which to give. But the same grace that we see in the genealogy is active today. Receive God's love and then celebrate his amazing grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you can look at us in all of our brokenness and our failure and declare that you accept us and forgive us 
because of the birth, death, and resurrection of our King, Jesus Christ. May we not only know about that love, but actually experience it. And may such acceptance and grace motivate us out of gratitude to honor you more consistently today and every day throughout this Christmas season and beyond. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.